it turns out that walking or exercise is actually one of the best things you can do for the plasticity of your brain. We've all heard exercise is good for the brain. We are only now beginning to fully understand why. Fast walking, significant amounts of walking, triggers new brain cells and as important or even perhaps more important is neurotrophic growth factors. It makes it easier for neurons or the electrical brain cells to connect to each other and form new connections when you learn. So walking does this. Our guest, Dr. Norman Doidge, is a master at explaining the complex and evolving world of brain science. Because the brain is plastic, culture changes our brains. So you really have to institute various practices to take over and not feel you have to be a prisoner of the latest technology. People have to start asking themselves, not do I own the latest technology, but do I own my own attention? You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations. We call this episode Breaking News on the Brain. Our guest is an esteemed psychiatrist who is operating on the frontiers of the exciting field called neuroplasticity or brain plasticity. Uh, we want to welcome Dr. Norman Doidge. Dr. Doidge, uh, thank you for joining me on Wavemaker Conversations. Thank you very much for having me. First of all, I can't tell you how thrilled I am to be speaking with a psychiatrist and psychotherapist for an entire hour for free. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? If you didn't call, I would have had to send you a bill for the missed session, but it is for free, yes. <laughs> well, let me just say that eight years ago, I read your highly acclaimed book, uh, which is called The Brain That Changes Itself, Stories of Personal Triumph from the Frontiers of Brain Science. And it really does seem to be a frontier, this field of neuroplasticity. And now your new book, The Brain's Way of Healing, I was excited to hear that you had this book coming out because I wanted to hear what has Dr. Deutsch discovered in his journeys during the past eight years. Well, this book uh, begins where the last left off. The first book tried to establish that brain circuits are changeable. Um, this book uh, is about a second generation of neuroplasticians that weren't burdened with having to prove that the brain can change and goes into depth about how brain change can be used to foster healing in the brain. And for many decades, doctors and scientists didn't use the word healing and brain in the same sentence. We thought that the brain had evolved, become so sophisticated, complex, and specialized in basically helping to produce mental activity or being a medium for mental activity that a price was paid. It lost the ability available to other organs to um, to repair itself or restore lost function if damaged. It was just so sophisticated that nothing, no kind of replacement parts could be found. And if there was damage, there, even if there were replacement parts, how would they get into the circuit and work? And what this book is about is turning that on its head and showing that the very sophisticated attributes of the brain that allow it to make complex circuits very rapidly forming them, unforming them, and reforming them turns out to be the basis of a form of healing that is unique to the brain, that the brain doesn't heal the way other organs do. It's got its own way of healing, and that's the brain's way of healing. I, I want to start with something that I didn't think would be as 
universally relevant to, to all of us. I want to start with your chapter on Parkinson's disease and some, some, some really fresh insights that I got. And I'm very familiar with Parkinson's disease because my father, my late father, who was a stand-up comedian, started in show business as a champion dancer with the very athletic Lindy Hop and then went into stand-up comedy and was known for his energetic performances. He was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, I'd say around age 60, and and I remember my father gradually, gradually stiffening, just as the doctors suggested he would. I saw a jump in his step turn into that classic shuffle. I saw the mask on his face, that, that lack of expression. I also remember his last show that he did at the Waldorf Astoria in New York, and I remember I hadn't seen my father perform in several years, and I watched him hunched over, stiff, rigid, ready to be introduced, and as soon as they introduced ladies and gentlemen Bobby Shields, he almost thrust it onto the stage, and I couldn't believe the transformation. And now that I've read your chapter, I realize you have discovered new insights into how people can approach Parkinson's that are really relevant to all of us. So please tell us about that. My goodness. I mean, that's just an incredible story. I, um, you tell of your father. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to hear more, but wow. Um that is interesting. One of the distinct memories I have is that the doctor in his diagnosis and telling my father what he could expect did almost parenthetically say, you know, exercise can help. And we could never get my father motivated to exercise. And now that I've read your new book, The Brain's Way of Healing, I understand more about why he couldn't get motivated. So maybe if we start with how the brain motivates itself Okay. Well, let me first of all define neuroplasticity for your listeners. It's the property, neuro is for neuron, the nerve cells in the brain that fire electrical signals. And plasticity means changeable, adaptable, modifiable. And we've discovered hundreds of scientists now that the brain has a property which allows it to change its structure and function in response to activity and mental experience. And activity could be physical activity, that because whenever we do a physical activity, our brain is involved, or it could be a mental activity, and mental experience could include sensing, perceiving, imagining, too. And all of these activities can help to change brain structure and function. Um, now, let's go to Parkinson's. Parkinson's is a disease that has a, you know, some of the symptoms you described. In medicine, it's really important to distinguish between three levels. There are symptoms, which is what the patient is aware of experiencing, and signs, things that the doctor can pick up that the patient might pick up, but that are abnormal. Underneath that, there's the pathology that drives the symptoms. That's a problem in an organ. And it was 19th century medicine that really put the link between symptoms and pathology. And underneath that, there's something called pathogenesis, which is what is the process that gives rise to the pathology? So when I'm talking now, I want to distinguish those three things. This applies to any illness, this tripartite structure. The pathology of Parkinson's has been thought to be the following, that a part of the brain called the substantia nigra loses the chemical dopamine. And that part of the brain it's not just a substantia nigra, is responsible for taking individual components of movements and weaving them together into a complex 
uh, series of movements and making it automatic so we don't have to think about it. So when you unbutton your shirt, you're not thinking about every button. When you walk, it's the same thing. You know, initially when a child learns to walk, they have to learn, you know, to kind of lift one foot and move it forward and keep their balance and then the other and so on. Parkinson's patients lose that ability. So it's a great effort for them to, to do things and to initiate things. Another thing we've learned, which might apply to your father, and this has been shown very recently um, by a group out of Columbia University. If you train Parkinson patients repeatedly to do something, they can do it pretty much as well. Uh, and this is even people with significant Parkinson's pretty much as well are almost as well as people who don't have Parkinson's, but they require more training and it's a greater effort. One of the things we've known about dopamine is not only is it, does it involve this part of the brain I'm talking about, but it's also called the reward neurotransmitter. And so when we're about to accomplish a goal or when we actually accomplish a goal, dopamine is secreted and it, it gives us that thrilling feeling of triumph and accomplishment. And it also consolidates the connections between the nerve cells that allowed us to do that thing. And that too is compromised in some way in, in Parkinson's. Here's what I mean. To a Parkinson's patient, they cannot get the sense of reward for doing something. There's like part of the brain does a cost benefit analysis. Is it worth, you know, me getting up and going to look out the window to see if it's raining or not? If you don't have Parkinson's, it just seems like, yeah, I, I want to do it, I'll do it. If you have Parkinson's, they can't get the sense of reward. So what I'm saying to you is that Parkinson's isn't just a physical problem and the ability to move, but the part of the mental part of the brain that will tell you it's worth moving is compromised. Plasticity has taught us in many different ways that it's a use it or lose it brain. If a circuit's not working um, well, and it's an effort to use, You'll stop, people will tend to stop using it, and then it starts to atrophy or waste away. So just like any muscle? Just like a muscle, yes. And this is what biological systems do. They tend to go dormant if they can't be used um, or we think they're not, not usable. I tell the story of a man, John Pepper, who developed Parkinson's in his early 30s. He had the first signs, sort of like Michael J. Fox. Uh, he also had a very early onset. And to make a long story short, he was a very dogged individual. At one point, his wife decided she wanted to lose a few pounds, and she joined this program in South Africa, Africa called Run, Walk for Life. That's where they lived. And that program has gotten many, many people who are sedentary, and even some athletes going on walking, and then some people on running. And as he gradually got to the point where he could do quite a significant amount of walking in an hour and 15 minutes, but it, it took a long time to work up to it. And he noticed that his symptoms actually started to improve. Now, he had been started on the standard medications for Parkinson's, and initially they seemed to be helpful to him. And if I may interrupt, you know, remembering the medications, my father took same basic medications to, to basically uh, uh, give your brain an input of more dopamine, correct? Yes, that's right. Exactly right. Now, P Pepper kept doing these exercises, and over time, you might say, because he was early enough in the, in the disease, he could still move. But he still had some of the typical rigidity in the mask-like face that your, your dad had. 
And at one point when he was doing this run walk for life, one of the instructors who didn't know he had Parkinson said, stand up straight. You're, you know, you're stooped. Now, normally if you saw a patient with Parkinson's who was stooped, you would feel badly for them because that's what the illness tends to do. But he just took his, you know, he started to notice, yeah, I am stooped. And so he corrected that. And a person with Parkinson's can do that, but it's an effort to do so. And then he decided to analyze anything else in his gait that was abnormal. And he saw that a foot was dragging and he, he, he analyzed every little detail, pushing off with this foot, lifting this heel, lifting, you know, one foot, you know, by bending it at the hip, swinging the, the calf forward on the knee, landing. He it came to call a conscious walking technique where walking was no longer an automatic thing, but each and every step, each component of every step was something he would think about. Now, you think about what I said early on about what goes on in Parkinson's. We lose the ability to make automatic movements. What he was doing was finding another brain area, probably in the frontal lobes, to just do what little children do, which is kind of each step was learning to walk for the first time. He was not repairing the part of his brain that was causing the dopamine deficiency, it sounds like he was calling on a different part of the brain that normally doesn't get involved in this kind of effort? Initially, yes. Yes. Initially, he was not repairing the part of the brain that had a dopamine deficiency, but it's going to get more complicated. Initially, he was finding a workaround, another part of the brain, to basically put the individual movements together automatically. He couldn't do it automatically, so he just did it with mental effort. Now, the advantage of this seemingly onerous way of walking, though, was that he was walking. He was no longer sedentary. And he found the more he walked, something started to happen, which is the easier it was to walk. And he started to show fewer and fewer of the classic signs of of Parkinson's when he was walking. Now... I want to say a few words about walking, because you said, you know, walking is, you know, about some general principles in life. It turns out that walking or exercise is actually one of the best things you can do for the plasticity of your brain. The brain is fundamentally plastic. That's how it works. I've come to the conclusion that actually you can make it more plastic. And exercise for sure is physical exercise is one way to do it we'll talk about mental exercise in a bit but physical exercise is unique for the following reason we know that something like walking you know fast walking significant amounts of walking like pepper was doing improves your brain's plasticity in two particular ways Um, first of all it triggers neurotrophic growth factors so neurotrophic just means growth factors that relate to the the brain and nervous system. They are kind of like fertilizer that helps a plant grow. They support brain function in general. One of them is called glial-derived neurotrophic factor. And another neurotrophic factor called brain-derived neurotrophic factor makes it easier for neurons or the the electrical brain cells to connect to each other and form new connections when you learn. So walking does this. The other thing walking does is it actually triggers the birth of new brain cells. So there are some stem cell-like cells in the brain. Um, We spent 100 years looking for them, and most practitioners 
we're taught they do not exist, but in 1998, they were discovered in a small area of the brain called the hippocampus, which is one of the most important parts of the brain because it turns all your short-term memories into long-term memories. It's the part that goes in, in Alzheimer's first. So think about it. Walking triggers new brain cells and as important or even perhaps more important, these neurotrophic growth factors. And, and, and amazingly, and I have to pause at this because amazingly, it wasn't until, did you say the year was 1998? Yes. Less than 20 years ago, this was discovered. And, and let me ask you, walking at any age, no matter how old you are? Yes, at any age. The, the, the stem cells, for instance, and again, that's just part of the picture. The neurotrophic growth factors are really huge, too. The stem cells were actually discovered in terminal cancer patients who donated their brains to science. On the day they died, they still had some new baby stem cells in their brains. So it's cradle to grave. Now, that may be more important for something like Alzheimer's than Parkinson's, but it's probably important in Parkinson's, too. But why would walking do this? Well, the, one of the co-discoverers of these stem cells in the brain, Frederick Gage, put forward the following extremely compelling theory. When does an animal go on a long walk? I mean, a really long walk. It's usually because the environment it's in is lacking food or now has a new predator on the prowl, and it's dangerous uh, to stay where they are. So they have to go a long distance into a new territory. And what does every animal do in a new territory? They explore this unexplored territory in great detail, which means they're learning about it. And so Gage proposed that the proliferation of, of stem cells we see in walking is a kind of anticipatory proliferation. The brain is saying, I'm on my way when I'm going to have to do a lot of learning. I'd better be prepared. I find that extremely compelling. Let me ask you, not, not to get you off track, but so this learning, this new learning, does that then trigger a positive feedback loop that when you learn new things, you then actually grow more of these uh, neurons, uh, which then allows you to make more connections and learn even more? Well, as far as we know now, the walking, the physical activity is triggering the growth of the new neurons. But when you're learning and doing something like an advanced exacting cognitive activity, let's say like learning a f vocabulary in a foreign language, where you really have to stretch, that tends to preserve existing connections in the brain. It seems walking triggers new neurons, and learning itself triggers strengthened connections and a kind of reserve of connections. Anyway, just back to Pepper. I think what Pepper was doing was triggering these growth factors throughout his brain, by all this walking. The conscious walking technique of focusing on each detail of movement was what got him moving in the first place. But once he was moving, that just was a general enhancement of his brain plasticity. And so his Parkinson's has not gotten radically worse. If he can't walk, like patients with Parkinson's, like everybody else, sometimes have setbacks. Uh, Parkinson's patients frequently get pneumonia. He did. He couldn't walk when he had pneumonia. And he regressed. He got, got sort of stiffer and stiffer, and it was harder for him to do anything. And it would take about another six weeks to get back to of walk, learning to rewalk very, very slowly without injuring himself to get to the point where he looked like he didn't have Parkinson's at all. 
and you know his life he got his life back and and after a number of years of doing this he actually went off all medication and you know he's not anti-medication but he you know part of the problem is the way i look at it is you know parkinson's is this affects both the ability to move easily and the motivation to move because that sensor inside that tells you it's worth it to move is harmed. So what we need for patients with Parkinson's is a kind of boot camp. When they're diagnosed, they're taught all these things and they're trained to do the conscious walking technique and they get moving. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations. In a moment, we'll get back to Dr. Doidge and we'll hear from one of the patients that he has profiled in his new book, The Brain's Way of Healing. With Domino's new Piece of the Pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband. Happy 36 and a half. Or your cat. (coughs) Or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our $5.99 mix-and-match deal at Domino's.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at Domino's.com slash rewards. You must select this limited-time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary. Know what's going on with your favorite artists, bands, and celebs. Sign up today to get the Radio.com daily newsletter, which covers all your breaking music and entertainment news. Go to Radio.com slash newsletter to get updates directly to your inbox. That's Radio.com slash newsletter. This is Wavemaker Conversations. I'm your host, Michael Schulder. We're speaking with Dr. Norman Doidge, author of the new book, The Brain's Way of Healing. As a parent, you know, we want to create the kind of environment that is going to benefit our children the most, you know, in in that holistic way, in every way. Given what you've learned over now uh, more than a decade of being immersed, really embedded in the world of neuroplasticity, what would you tell parents? One, One of the big takeaways, I think, from your work is neuroplasticity has its upside and its downside. The downside of plasticity is... Let me start with the upside, and if the evil twin will become immediately apparent. If you, it turns out that if you study something very carefully, let's say it's something that requires close observation or sensing, listening to opera, listening to a choir, learning how to listen to harmonies and separate them out, you become more and more discerning. And it's not just that your mind becomes more discerning, but there's brain processing abilities that you acquire because, you know, you're, you get new circuits. Plasticity is competitive. Whenever you train anything in the brain, you develop circuits that fire faster, clearer, stronger signals. And they can begin to dominate the maps of the brain, the processing areas of the brain. Plasticity is like snow on a hill in winter. Because the brain is flex, like the snow is flexible, malleable, plastic, when you first ski down the hill, you can take many different paths. But if you keep, if you like that path, skiing down the hill, being human, you'll probably take a path close to it next time and the time after. And the next thing you know, you've got tracks in the snow and ruts and you're stuck. That's a metaphor for how if you keep doing something over and over, which isn't good for you, your brain gets very good at doing that, and it's hard to change. So that's the downside of plasticity. And so given the upside of it, how long does it take? If you have an ingrained habit and are in a deep rut, 
it still sounds like there is hope for you to get out of that rut. Yeah. In the book, I describe all sorts of, I mean, in general, you have to create a block so that you can't do that. It's a use it or lose it brain. So you've got to find a way to block the habit. And, you know, the, the, the brain in certain respects is habit forming, meaning it's because it's plastic and you do things over and over, the circuitry gets better and better. So in general, there are techniques in there in the first book for dealing with things like obsessions and ruminations and various kinds of bad habits and even bad neurological habits, which involve replace, replacing bad habits with good habits. Bad habits were some, you know, sometimes formed to solve a problem and then they, they take over. And one of the ways is to create a block in the bad habit and immediately replace it with a good, wholesome habit. So give me an example that you've seen work in practice where a, a bad, destructive habit has been replaced with a good habit and has done so through the plasticity of the brain. Well, one of the first neuroplastic uh, psychotherapies, I'll just give just one example, had to do with OCD. And Jeffrey Schwartz in L.A. and colleagues scanned the brains of people with severe OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and they found that compared to people without it, there were three brain areas that were involved. And because it's a plastic brain and neurons are fired together, wired together, um, they're reinforcing worry. Worry begets, tends to beget worry in most of us, and it just is, be, forms a vicious cycle. And you scan those people, and what you find is that that's the whole circuit I described of those three brain areas is hyperactive in people with OCD compared to people without it. The first thing they have to know is that worry begets worry. And that the second they get, they get OCD, they, they have to say something to themselves like, I have a problem right now. It's that I have OCD, my brain gets stuck, and therefore I have to, just like John Pepper, use conscious control to move on to the next thing. And they, in general, have five activities or four activities that they will force themselves to do whenever they have an attack of the rumination. So that's the block right there that I'm describing. It might be whenever I get this attack, I immediately go and do something I like, like gardening or whatever the activity is. It doesn't matter. It just has to be a wholesome activity. All that counts is the effort against thinking about the rumination and to do something else. And over time, they kind of build up a muscle that allows them to switch and decrease the rumination. Does it help either OCD patients or other people with similar conditions to actually have a, a picture of what's going on in their brain? Because it sounds to me like a lot of what you've discovered and what you've brought to light that other people have discovered could not have been discovered before we had the technology to look into people's brains in real time because of the scanning technology. I, I think that a lot of the ancient Eastern traditions had different ways of, of doing these things, using awareness to change these things without necessarily knowing what was happening in the brain. You know, we're a very impatient culture, and if change doesn't come quickly, we're on to the next thing because we want the quick fix. So by informing people in this fairly material view of the world in the West that this is what's happening in your brain and explaining and showing them brain scans so that they understand they're not wasting their time, it helps their motivation. That's basically it. You're giving them an explanation as to how this is working that they can understand in terms that make sense to them as to why they should stick to it. But if they had been, let's say, a meditator in an Eastern tradition where there's a coach and there's an understanding that meditation takes a lot of time to learn, you know, thousands of hours. Certain kinds of meditation, you're doing the same thing. 
um, you know, you try to concentrate on the breath, which gives you a physiological baseline that's very comfortable, if not at times blissful. And every time your thought, you know, wanders from that in certain kinds of meditation, you bring it back. It's like blocking in, in some ways. You accept the thought that you're going back, oh, there I am worrying again, and then you try to focus on the breath or, or whatever your, your form of meditation is. It can work for compulsions and it can work for invasive thoughts. It's one of several approaches to OCD. I'm not saying it's the only approach, but it's a, it's a neuroplastic approach, and I found it helpful with patients who, uh, where other things don't work. So now let me transition a little bit to one of the most stunning parts of your, of your new book. It's the management of chronic pain. I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to who are telling me about family members who experience just chronic, persistent pain that they can't get rid of. And you have a chapter in your book uh, based on the latest neuroplastic techniques where one can actually alleviate to a great degree chronic pain without medicine. I'll tell you a story as to how uh, this, this particular technique was discovered. Um, and as a matter of fact, you know, right now I'm in San Francisco. And last night I spent some time with Dr. Michael Moskowitz, who is the kind of hero of this first story in the book. Dr. Moskowitz is a psychiatrist turned pain specialist. And he's, he'd studied a lot of psychosomatic medicine. And he, he ended up in the Bay Area here in Sausalito dealing with chronic pain patients that had tried absolutely everything. And that means all the heavy-duty medications that we use, which are um, you know, opioid-like, morphine-like, etc., got nerve blocks, which are in injections to block pain. Those are you know, Western techniques, but also had tried meditation, acupuncture, various complementary things, and they still had terrible pain. You know, many of these people had terrible injuries that caused their acute pain um, to turn into chronic pain. And, Acute pain, again, it's our friend. It tells us, don't move, you'll hurt the, the limb. Chronic pain was what happens when the brain is just inundated with ongoing acute pain signals that it gets so good at processing them that it becomes hypersensitive and f fires for long, long periods. Chronic pain is plasticity gone wild. Look, Michael Moskowitz had two visceral experiences in his life that led him ultimately to become a pain patient himself. Moskowitz, who is kind of a Huck Finnish kind of guy, is with a friend, and they go to the San Rafael dump. So Dr. Michael Moskowitz, Dr. Norman Deutsch uh, calls you a Huck Finnish kind of guy. Well, what does he mean by that? I have no idea. <laughs> well, you're a Huck Finnish kind of guy with a good sense of humor, and uh, then take us, take us to the dump. I was getting married, and my, my uh, wife's Friends came into the house, or my future wife's friends at that point came into the house and dumped out a, a seven years of a bachelor's cabinet, um, cabinets and, and, and closets and everything, and had a sizable amount of, of material to bring to the dump. And I got there and I dumped it with a friend of mine. And when we got there, there were some tanks that were being staged for a Fourth of July parade that was coming up. This was June 26, 1999, a day I will not forget. We went, we dumped our, our garbage and then we went back behind the fence where we kind of snuck behind and there were 50 tanks and jeeps and something irresistible to a, a, a man of my age, 49 at the time. And um, 
I was, we climbed all over a bunch of them and they had turrets and they had machine guns, all kinds of stuff. And as I was getting ready to get in the car, my friend Tony said, Oh, look, this one, the turrets open. And I climbed up on the deck and looked inside and it looked very cramped and crowded. And I thought, boy, I wouldn't want to be in one of those. And I hunkered down to jump off the deck and jumped off backwards. And my right leg landed successfully on the ground, but my left leg caught on a piece of metal that was sticking out from the deck that they used to carry gas cans on. My leg shot up above my head and my femur shattered in, in um, probably three different planes. And, um, and I was screaming at the top of my lungs. And in that moment, I understood what 10 out of 10 pain was. As he's lying there, he then discovers something else. If he doesn't move for at least a minute, the pain drops to nothing. And he thinks, you know, I'd always taught this to my residents, that there's, there's a switch in the brain. That it's called the gate theory of pain. And the brain can stop pain from going to the from from being felt if there's no danger of moving the organ and injuring it. There really, truly is a switch in the brain that can turn off pain. And he thought, if only I could learn how to use that with my patients. As I was recovering, um, a neck injury that I had sustained several years before on a, on a water skiing accident really started to bother me. And my leg healed very well and became painless. Um, and, um, and that happens a lot with femur fractures. They're just the worst pain you can experience when they happen, but they do heal well usually. And, um, my neck became a problem. My neck really started bothering me every day. And so for about a four year period after my leg was, was pretty well healed from a pain standpoint, my neck became an everyday chronic pain situation. And there I had, um, had my neck evaluated. I, I have several degenerative discs. I have um, places where the nerves really don't have any room to come out of their holes. I have, I have inflammation of the joints. I mean, my neck had really been messed up. And now it was starting to hurt all the time. And day in and day out, it averaged usually between a two and a five in the way of pain, but it could spike up to an eight pretty easily. And it would just stop my day when it would do that. And, you know, I was seeing patients. It was, I was, <laughs> I was treating chronic pain. I didn't particularly want to have it. And, um, you know, I wasn't at that point, I was using a bunch of different medicines to help sleep and, and anti-inflammatories. And every once in a while, I'd have to take an opioid. And I used traction. I used a stimulator. And one day I was kind of um, contemplating getting one of those bed chairs that you can sit up in the bed and read because I found that sitting in bed was aggravating my neck all the time um, when I was reading or researching or doing any of the stuff I was doing now on, on neuroplasticity and pain. I was starting to publish on the, the things that go wrong with neuroplasticity and pain. And I thought, I'm not doing this. I'm not making another adjustment. Moskowitz learned from his reading that plasticity was competitive. So he had the following thought. What if, whenever I experience the slightest twinge of pain, I do something to take back the hijacked areas of my brain maps that are being hijacked by pain? He actually knew that roughly 20% of the, these maps get hijacked for processing pain instead of the other function. And he decided since the part of the brain that processes visual activity is a very, you know, a pretty large part of the brain, and it's easy to visualize wherever you are, that whenever he got the slightest attack of pain, he would visualize something. I started with some visualizations of how the brain is lit up and, and real estate in the brain expands in chronic pain states. And I tried to push that back in my visualizations to something that wasn't expanded. 
And then I just started naming the parts of the brain that, that become lit up when we start to perceive pain. Um, and I would name them over and over again, even while I was having conversations with people, even while I was driving the car, whenever I was doing anything in my head, I would be naming these parts. And over a period of a few weeks, I thought, you know, I actually think I'm able to kind of get this to lower a little bit and not be as strong a signal as it is, even at some of its, its, you know, strongest forays into my consciousness in eight out of 10 periods, I was able to knock it back down again. And then interestingly, after about, oh, I'd say six weeks or so, I noticed that an area that had been painful all the time, which had been my shoulder and my scapula and area of my mid-back, really stopped hurting. Uh, more and more, the pain became kind of a, a more compact area until it really was just in my neck and just in the around the area where my neck was injured. And then eventually, over the course of the next year, it went away. So I figured I ought to try this on my patients. And um, we have some of the um, toughest pain cases in the in the world because when we don't do a lot of injections and procedures. And so when people come in to see us, they've usually been operated on and injected and they've gone through lots of different treatment and they're not better. And so we get people that are sort of in the um, worst of the worst situation. So I, I pick the areas where we have pain perception um, and I, I, um, I made some animations of them. They're, they're up on our website. At Neuro, it's called the neuroplastics.com with an X at the end. And we, we, um, you know, I set up these animations. I would explain neuroplasticity to the patients and then have them look at the pictures back and forth, put them down after a while and just memorize what they looked at. Like think about that when their pain was there and whenever their pain intruded enough upon their consciousness to bother them to apply looking at the, the picture with pain and the brain without pain. And then um, I had them say to themselves, if my brain looks like the brain not in pain, I can't have any pain. What are the neuroplastic principles that have been proved and, and some maybe that are that we're still looking into that, that underlie this process of one being able to paint a picture of what's going on in your brain and use that to eliminate pain? Well, there, there are three rules of neuroplasticity, but this is a very big question you've asked me. This is seven years of work. <laughs> probably about, probably about 20,000 um, pages of, of research. But, but um, basically, the, the, it boils down to these basic principles. Um, what gets fired get, gets wired. And what that means is that when you use a part of your brain, you, you, it, it becomes um, expanded um, it fires for a longer period of time, and the firing is stronger than it was before. The area that that of, of the brain that's used is is expanded, but by, by taking over brain cells from other processes that we're not using so much. So stepping back from that, that's principle number one. It almost sounds like there's there's a an analogy in nature with we talk about invasive species. It's exactly an analogous, and so if you step back from that. We have 100 billion brain cells in the adult brain, and we have 1,000 trillion synapses um, between those cells. Um, and each brain cell averages about 10,000 synapses. What's interesting is that that's not enough for a, a dominant process to really take over in any point in time or to last. So what happens is our brain cells are all pretty interchangeable. And what you use the most 
you you wire the most. Um, and what you this is the second principle: what you don't use, you lose. But really, what that means is what you're using less of is susceptible to being taken over by a process that you're you're using more of. And in the case of chronic pain, that's what happens. That the the map. Um, expands. We, we have more brain cells dedicated to pain in the area where it's processed. And it, it, it takes over, and over time, it really wires itself in. There's one more principle that we discovered along the way that wasn't really talked about, but is just as important, which is the third principle of neuroplasticity, which is you don't make new connections without breaking old connections. And when you break old connections, you make new connections. So the brain's constantly making and breaking connections. A lot of it is the stuff that we think about and we learn and we and we either reinforce or we change. And so in this process, um, um, it, it, it's been proven over time that this is really a basic way that the brain works, and that's what neuroplasticity really is. So where chronic pain was concerned, I figured, well, why not start applying this against the pain since this is how the chronic pain process forms can't we use the same thing against it um, to help it help the brain heal and help the brain manage itself differently? You know, when we laymen first hear the term, you know, the brain is plastic, you can change it. That all sounds good, but what you've described, what Dr. Doy just described is, well, wait a second, it can also be bad because, you know, certain bad habits can entrench, I guess, certain connections between your neurons that really don't work to your favor. So, you know, the first thought is, well, just ignore it. But you're saying, no, you can't ignore it. You actually have to. T- you have to have to actually have to take the bad connections head on. Right, and it really ignoring this or dis- or trying to be distracted from it is a fool's errand, because the pain will constantly intrude. And it's you know these principles hold true not just with things like pain, but also with depression, um, with anxiety, with post-traumatic stress disorder with with so many different things. Dr. Golden, my partner in all this, and I call it um, uh, uh, counter-stimulation. And so really what we look at with this is that anytime your brain is being stimulated with a pain signal, you need to counter-stimulate it. And it's an interesting idea because it says, look, it doesn't matter if it's a big thing or a little thing, turn on the rest of your brain every time your brain is turned on to intrude upon consciousness with pain. Just turn on something else, and it doesn't matter if that makes it better or it doesn't make it better. You just want to keep turning on these nerve cells so the pain doesn't get comfortable and take over more and more and more brain real estate. Dr. Michael Moskowitz, uh, thank you so much for joining us on Wavemaker Conversations. You're welcome, man. With Domino's new Piece of the Pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband. Happy 36 and a half. Or your cat. (coughs) Or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our $5.99 mix and match deal at Domino's.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at Domino's.com slash rewards. You must select this limited time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary. Want great deals on products and unique experiences in your neighborhood? Look no further than CVS Local Offers, which brings you the best local deals in your community with everything from enticing restaurants to exciting events. Go to offers.cvslocal.com today. This is Wavemaker Conversations. I'm your host, Michael Schulder. We're speaking with Dr. Norman Doidge, author of the new book, The Brain's Way of Healing, work that he's done on the frontiers of neuroplasticity. 
I remember my grandmother, my late grandmother, always saying, I'm fine getting old as long as I have my marbles. And, and a lot of these insights in the field that you're exploring now have to do, have, have direct applications to all of us keeping our marbles staying sharp. And in this age, and this applies to both aging and also parenting, in this age where we are surrounded by distractions, part of that competitive plasticity has a real challenge. How is the best way to go about and live one's life in a way where the competitive plasticity works to our advantage? There's no, there's no divinity or God of modern technology asking the question, what is good for us as human beings? What's most conducive for living, you know, a life of happiness and flourishing to, you know, use Aristotelian language about this? Ask your grandmother, what do you have in life? What do you really have? You have time. You have what your, your attention, what you're focused on. Whether you're rich or poor. And we've delegated out our attention to other people. And we've created this channel that gives far too much access to our minds. You know, a brain that's overconnected and always firing is an epileptic brain. In the ancient world, you know, there were four cardinal virtues. Um, and one of them, you know, one, you know, one of them was wisdom, one of them was justice, and one of them was courage, and one of them was something akin to our word for moderation. There's no moderation in any of this. It's just more, 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 more. And, you know, you have to be philosophical about this. You have to show certain wisdom about this. Um, you turn on your computer and suddenly you are in the marketplace with everyone jostling for your attention. You have to put a block in there. You have to limit your time on it. Uh, it will take over your life. It will take over your life and it will redesign your brain. It will lower your attention span. And I, I know that there are young people out there think a person who says this is an old fogey and doesn't know what he's talking about. But I would respectfully say they have lived on, in only one world. And that's, you know, the world of the Internet. Because the brain is plastic, culture changes our brains. So you really have to institute various practices to take over and not feel you have to be a prisoner of the latest f technology. It's messing people up because it's 24-7. And our bodies cycle and require periods of long rest and contemplation. So it has to be put into your day. You, people have to start asking themselves, not do I own the latest technology, but do I own my own attention? Do I own my own attention? I'm going to remember that question. Dr. Norman Deutsch, uh, author, first eight years ago of the path-breaking work, The Brain That Changes Itself, uh, and the new book, uh, The Brain's Way of Healing, Remarkable Discoveries and Recoveries from the Frontiers of Neuroplasticity. Thank you so much for joining us uh, and, and devoting all this time to uh, Wavemaker Conversations. Thank you very much. If you like what you just heard, you can subscribe to Wavemaker Conversations on the new CBS podcasting network called Play It. That's play.it. You can also subscribe on iTunes, and you can follow my work on my website, wavemaker.me. I'm Michael Schulder. Thank you for listening. With Domino's new Piece of the Pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband. Happy 36 and a half. Or your cat. Yeah! 
Or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our $5.99 mix and match deal at Domino's.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at Domino's.com slash rewards. You must select this limited time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary.